So we are continuing our series this morning on the power for salvation. And this comes out of our key verse, which is Romans chapter 1. Key verses, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, which says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous one will live by faith. This is a great sort of key verses because it sort of sets the tone for what our personal and group theology has to be. This is the basis for living. This is the basis for Christianity. Why we do what we do, why we teach what we teach. And if you don't get a hold of this, We're going to run off in all kind of directions that look like all of the religions on the earth that have tried real hard to reach God in their own way. I love Wade's slide, and I put it back up again this morning, this iceberg, because it's so, so very true. Jenny and I have taught this our whole marriage. We first started teaching college kids right after we got married, and Ellie was just a baby. Our first time that we talked to them, we put up a slide similar to this. Starts with your worldview, which influences your beliefs. Your beliefs then create your values. Your values then determine determine your behavior. My friend Andy Weaver likes to say that there's a lot I like about a lot of religions, but their first move is wrong. Right? This first move of what is my worldview If I don't get that, if I don't get God's worldview, my beliefs are going to be wrong, though they may look good. My values are going to be wrong, though they may look moral. And then my behaviors will be informed and guided by that basis. And I will become the enemy of God, no matter how good I look to the rest of the world. And that's really what's at stake. I think a lot of times we like to float around in the, I'm, you know, we did that I'm okay series, you know, being okay is just okay series. A lot of times we like to float around in that, I'm, yeah, I'm doing fine, doing fine. God says, no, you're chasing me or you're my enemy. It's just really, it's really cut and dried. And we sound, well, that sounds authoritarian, that sounds rigid and rough. The God of the universe who sent his son to die for us and rise again to save us from our wickedness has the authority, and Jesus says, I have all of the authority to say that to you. You either come to me, or you are my enemy. Look at the bottom of Romans chapter 17, the last part of the verse. It says, the righteous one will live, how? By faith. The righteous one just means the one who is justified, the one who is holy, the one who is pursuing the things of God. That person will live by faith. That person will live by God's worldview. Our theology, and we talk about this word theology, our our study of God, our understanding of God. And I know that this is just not super popular in the American church because it's hard. It feels like school. And but guys, like if This is fundamental, and this is why we felt deeply as a group of elders that this series was really important for us, not at this juncture in our church as much as this juncture in our history, 
this juncture in our culture and what's happening in the world and what's happening in society, the society we live in, societies in other parts of the world, the mess that's going on in Ecuador, the mess that's going on in the Middle East. I mean, it's just a train wreck, right? The world is on fire, but it always has been. The fundamental question is, why are we here? Right? Everybody asks that question. Why are we here? How did we get here? Right? And we talk about the iceberg slide or our worldview. If my worldview is that the universe exploded out of a cosmic accident and all matter that there is and has ever been came into existence at one point in time and is tending toward chaos, that the universe is getting bigger and further spread apart and that I am the result of a cosmic accident that ultimately through the course of evolution got to this spot, that will inform my worldview. Because the truth is, this is all there is, and I'm going to get what I can get, and as much of it as I can get before I die. Because at the end, there is nothing. So I have no incentive to love you. I have no incentive to care for you. I have no incentive to put your needs above my own. And I certainly have no incentive to see that the world is a better place. Okay? Why are we here? Cosmic accident, behaviors as a result. And we can look all over the world and see those behaviors. Why am I here? God created, but he takes his hands off. He's just a big clockmaker. He makes the clock, he winds it up, and then boom, there it is. And then I get to control my destiny. And that makes me the center of my universe, God exists for my pleasure, and that informs my behaviors. But I'm still a good person because I believe in God, or God's. But I'm still the center of the universe because it's all for me. And what I can do, that informs my behaviors. Here's what God says, that we are here to worship, honor, and glorify the one true living eternal God the creator and sustainer of the universe. That is why I was created. So it answers all the questions. What is my place in the universe? Here's the answer. What is my purpose? Here's the answer. This is why I was made. And it's not because God is lonely. It's not because God needs me. In fact, you'll find that theme even working its way into some worship music. God does not need me. He is not lonely. He did not create me so that he could be complete. He is eternal and fully complete in and of himself. He did not need to create another God. Because if he created another God, then he's not God. He's God. He made me to worship and honor and glorify him so that the universe, through me, could see who he is. You don't believe me? Psalm 29, 1 through 2, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, 1 Peter 2, 5, Revelation 4, 11, Revelation 5, 13 through 14, Revelation 21, 1 through 22, 5. And that's just the most quoted one. This is our theology. We are here to glorify God, to find our greatest pleasure, our greatest desire, our highest goal in him. Because he's worthy. 
as the one who made me. But here's the thing. I am powerless to fulfill my purpose. Cannot do it. The reason for that is because I would like to be God. I would like to be the center of the universe, and I would like for God to do what I want. In fact, it's the first lie told to Adam and Eve in the garden by Satan. Oh no. God told you not to do that because you'll be like him. You'll be a God. And he's scared of you. And then Adam and Eve thought, gosh, I really would like to be, hmm, that's, that's a great idea. I really would like to be a God. And because of that sin, because of that stepping away from their purpose, they made themselves and the rest of us powerless to fulfill the very purpose for which they were created. The church calls this original sin. So when you hear the term original sin, that's what this is talking about. It's the moral corruption that we possess as a consequence of Adam's sin. It results in a sinful disposition toward God, toward the universe, and it manifests itself in habitually sinful and corrupt behavior. That is original sin. You will hear the word innocent thrown around a lot in our culture and in other cultures. Well, it's really bad because they killed innocent people. No one's innocent. Everyone, because of Adam's sin, from the moment they are born, is in sin and is powerless to fulfill their God-given purpose. Man, that's, that, that one sounds harsh, right? That one lands out in the world, and we're the worst people ever. Because people are generally good, right? I mean, people are generally nice. They generally want what's best for everybody, and they're, they're totally good. We're just trying to help them be better at being good. That's not God's theology. That's not God's worldview. That is not the way that he sees us. We are perpetually, inescapably in sin. Because our natural desire is not pressed toward God, it's pressed toward myself. You'll also hear the word used, depravity. Again, these are words that the American church has gotten away from because it's churchy and wordy and, oh gosh, people can't understand. You know how insulting it is for a pastor to stand up and tell you that you're too stupid to understand what depravity means? That you're too stupid to understand justification and sanctification? That is deeply insulting. (laughs) Every time I've sat in a service where some pastor said, well, we don't use churchy words around here, I'm going, well, do you think I'm stupid? Do you think these people are stupid? God doesn't think you're stupid. He made you with a tremendous amount of computing power. You can understand this. Depravity, it's moral corruption. It's wickedness. It's the innate corruption of our human nature due to that original sin. So when I say I am depraved, what most people in our society think is that I'm like a serial killer, or I torture people, or I mutilate animals. No, 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 no. I'm depraved because I was born in sin. Period. So we like to categorize, I like to put the really bad people over here and put myself over here because I'm a good guy. 
God says, nope, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is nobody who hits the mark. Not a person. If we don't start as believers with this understanding of who God is and this understanding of who we are, we are done. Because this is why we share the gospel. This is why I need God, first of all. It's why I need him. If I don't see my need for him, I'm not running after him. And the problem with most of us and the problem with most of our Christianity is we don't need God because we don't see our need for him because we think we're all right. And that's why we don't share the gospel with other people because we think they're generally okay. And they might actually get offended with us if we even insinuate they're not okay. So if you want to understand why we don't share the gospel, this is it, because we don't understand that we are depraved, that we are morally corrupt at our core, as a matter of fact. And we need God. We need his salvation. We need his Christ. And others do too. This is why we teach what God says. And this is why we teach theology. I think as all of you know, I'm a lawyer. I started my legal career before I went to law school as a prosecutor, as a, working in a prosecutor's office. All right. So I started in family court, dealing with juvenile and juvenile crimes. And then my last year at the Richland County Solicitor's Office, I worked in criminal court on the capital crimes group, okay? um, which was both terrifying and enlightening and told me that I did not want to be a prosecutor or a criminal defense lawyer. That is not what God built me for. Um, when, you, when you have to deal with murders and armed robberies and, and those kinds of things, it's, it's, it's a challenge. But I am a lawyer, and I do understand the criminal process. took criminal law in college and worked in it. criminal process has several phases, but once it gets to the lawyers, it starts with arraignment. So there's your arrest which is a law enforcement activity. And then once you've been arrested, it's handed over to the lawyers, the prosecutors, and the defense attorneys. The first step in that process is for you to be arraigned. At the arraignment is simply this. The charges that are leveled against you are brought. And you plead guilty or not guilty. Simply that. You've seen the shows, I'm sure a lot of you have all of which totally mischaracterize what it's like to be a lawyer. Uh, I haven't seen an accurate one yet, although there are some that are more accurate than others, but most are terribly inaccurate. Um, And and in in fact, I mean, the the law enforcement folks we have in the room can tell you that 90% of it is just mundane. It's just going through the motions, and it's dealing with people who've made terrible mistakes in their life because they were desperate. And you have to process them through the system. The TV only shows like the really, really high profile or or really, really bad cases. But arraignments happen every day. I mean, Richland County, for instance, has an arraignment twice a week. Uh, Some small, some big, some the media will cover, some they don't. We are arraigned in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. And 11 and 12. Apostle Paul says, what then? Are we better than they? Meaning, am I better than people who haven't come to Christ? 
Am I better than people of another ethnicity? Am I better than the Greeks? Am I better than the Gentiles? No, not at all. For we have already charged, I've already been arrested, that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, because as it is written, and then he quotes from the Old Testament, there is no righteous person, not even one. Paul is making sure here that you understand that these are God's words, not his words. There is no righteous person, not even one. There is no one who understands. That's a statement of fact, right? I'm still waiting for the proof here. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks out God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. And in all of these, and you see it in small caps on the screen, in all of these, Paul is quoting from God's word. That's God's arraignment of us. The creator of the universe says this about me. Yikes. And I stand up and egotistically plead, not guilty. And then the prosecutor, God says, well, let's move then to the indictment phase of your prosecution. The indictment is where the various counts of criminal acts are brought against you. And in our justice system, the book is opened and the statute is read that says, what the crime is, what the elements of that crime are, and how what I have done fits the elements of that crime. In some criminal prosecutions, there'll be one indictment. There's one act. But most of the time nowadays, any criminal act comes along with four or five different criminal charges, some stronger than others. But then the prosecutor has to get an indictment on every act that the prosecutor intends to get a conviction on. Sometimes in our system that goes before a grand jury, so the jury actually gets to hear the indictment. They don't get to decide the case, but they decide if the prosecutor has enough evidence to go forward on those charges. And that's what an indictment is. That's when a jury has determined they have enough evidence to go forward in a criminal prosecution. And it's really bad news when you get indicted. Not good. Here's the indictment. Starting in verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. They have not known the way of peace, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. The worst thing about these verses, besides the fact that they're true, is that we intrinsically know this to be the case of humanity in general. Even if we only had our own lifetime to look at, Even if I could only go on the experience that I've had in my personal lifetime, I know that what indictments have been brought against me, there is enough evidence to press forward with a prosecution. I have done all of this myself in one way or another, but I can certainly look around the world 
and see that this is absolutely, unequivocally true. Their throat is an open grave. I mean, look at the imagery. That's not a pretty picture. Because the tongue, the Bible says, is a terrible weapon. The tongue destroys, it tears down, it lays waste. It's like the venom of an asp that's under their lips. I don't know if you guys know how venomous snakes are built. The very poison that could kill even them resides in their own body. And it resides in two sacs that are just above their jawline. Either of those sacs burst, the snake is dead. A snake's, a venomous snake's fangs are actually hollow. They're like a hypodermic needle. And they fold up under two folds of skin just underneath the roof of their mouth. And when they eat and when they do the normal things of life, those two needles sit up against the roof of their mouth and it's totally fine. But when they need to strike, either to strike prey or to strike in defense, they unhinge their jaw and open their mouth. And when that happens, they activate the two poison sacs above their jawline. That piece of skin folds back, the fangs flop down so they can inject their venom either into their prey or into their attacker. God says, that's my mouth. That poison lies within me, and when I open my mouth, I spew it out on all, all over everybody. Because why? My mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. I say terrible things about people. I tear them down. I complain, I gripe, I manipulate to get what I want. My feet are swift to shed blood. I want people to be punished. I want people to hurt. I want people to die. It's my natural inclination. Destruction and misery are in my path. I mean, just human history since 1900. I mean, we don't even have to go back 250 years to know that this is true and that we've not known the way of peace. There has been no peace. We talked about this as part of our Advent series. And the basic bottom line in verse 18 is because we do not fulfill our purpose. There is no fear of God in our eyes. We do not revere him. We do not worship him. We do not glorify him, nor do we want to. That's our indictment. That's who I am. If I believe I bring anything to the table beyond this, my worldview is not God's worldview. And it will totally impact how I relate to God, how I relate to brothers and sisters in Christ, and ultimately how I relate to a world that does not know him. After I've been indicted, I have to go to trial. unless I decide at some point to plead guilty. You understand that coming to salvation involves pleading guilty. You don't get to come to Jesus because he's cool. Scripture is clear that to come to Christ, I have to change my plea to guilty and then throw myself on the mercy of the court, which we'll talk about next week. 
Romans 3.19 says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. That's what a trial is. It is me being accountable to the society in which I live and its laws. I can no longer run. I can no longer hide. I am now fully in front of the court where the law is read and I am held accountable to that law. And that's what God says in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, that we will all be and are all accountable to him. We are on trial. Romans 14, verses 11 and 12 says this, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, to me, every knee will bow, and every tongue will do what? What they were created to do. (laughs) Give praise to God. I love this. I've always loved this verse. And it's repeated again in Revelation in a different format. But this idea that what God created me to do, he will ultimately bring about at the end. The thing that I was created to do from the beginning will ultimately be the thing that happens, which is that everybody will be held accountable and every tongue will give praise to God. Each of us, in verse 12, each one of us will give an account of himself to God at our trial. Once the trial is over, and in this case, found guilty, there is a sentencing phase. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, because by the works of the law, none of mankind will be justified in his sight, For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I never understood this as a kid. I didn't understand how knowing the law caused me to sin. And then I started looking back, and the tree that Adam and Eve from is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the tree of the law. I think about it this way. Um... I was a kid, obviously, and I remember that very well. And I was also a super curious kid um, to the point of rebellion. Uh, my kids were super curious at different times. Um, I'm sure you can see this in yourself, and for those of you who have kids, you've seen it. Um, Brian, do not touch that. Prior to that moment in my history, I never had any intention of touching it. I did not know what it was. I did not know what it would do. But now I want to touch it. I really, I really, really need to touch it. That's what this means. That before the fall, Adam and Eve knew only God. They knew only righteousness. They knew only what he provided. And it was good. He said it over and over in Genesis 1 that everything he created was good. But once I know the law, one of my favorite comedians talks about being on a flight to Hawaii. And apparently on the flight, one of the flight attendants reminded him that there's turtles and that he's not to touch them. And he articulates this very well. He goes, what's wrong with touching the turtles? 
do, do I look like a person who would just go around touching turtles? I mean, why would you come tell me to touch the turtles? I'm not going to touch the turtles. But you know what? On second thought, like now I'm going to touch the turtles. I'm going to touch all the turtles. I have to touch them now. Right? He's explaining our condition, which is this knowledge of what is wrong draws us to it in this weird, I don't know, almost ironic fashion. Because it's who I am. And through the work of the law, I can't be justified. I can't become holy. I can't get back to God. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, you were dead in your offenses and sins. That's my sentence. Death. Dead. In which you previously walked according to the course of this world. Why? Because the world walks in it. According to the prince of the power of the air, the deceiver, Satan, and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That is you. You are of your father, the devil. That's offensive. So if I'm not in Christ, I'm not just over here being average. I'm either of Christ or I'm of my father, the devil. I'm I'm the devil's son, devil's child. Oof. That's my sentence. Ephesians 2.3 says this, Among them we too all previously lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Born out of wrath. Why? Because Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. It's not probation. It's not purgatory. It's not get to work it off one day. It's not the third level of heaven, but not the fourth. It's not coming back as a rat instead of a cow. It's not any of that. The wages of falling short of God is death. And that has to be our worldview because that's what God says about me. This is really bad news. But in order to know what good news is, I have to know what bad news is. Another great quote that I love from one of the greatest movies of all time, Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> one of the characters in the movie comes to the great Kung Fu leader and says, I have really, really bad news. And the Kung Fu leader says, there is no bad news and there's no good news. There's just news. And he says, Tai Long has escaped. And he goes, that is bad news. <laughs> right? Because that's really bad. Like, that's really bad news. And so what I'm telling you, this isn't just a, hmm, sorry that didn't work out for you. This is the bad news. This is what God says about us. We have been weighed. We have been measured. And we have been found wanting. And the result is spiritual death, physical death, and eternal separation from this God who made me and loved me and created me to worship and be with him eternity. That's my choice, not his. We're going to get into that a little bit later in this series as we talk about God being this cruel, evil tyrant who makes us do things and sends us to hell. Oh, how dare he? Mm -mm. I chose it. 
I decided to go there. Because I want to be God. Pretty straightforward. But wait. It's not where it ends. Not the end of the trial. There's an appeals process in our system. I may be sentenced, but I have an opportunity to appeal. Romans 6.23 on the back half says this, the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.3 says, but God. The word but starts both of those ideas. All of this is bad news, but God, but. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Romans 1, 16, 17. Come right back to it. The gospel, the good news, is that the power of God is salvation for everyone who believes. That belief that is informed by my worldview. So if my worldview is God-centered, then my belief is in Him, and when I believe, and I plead guilty, and I throw myself on His mercy. God's Word says that the Christ Himself appeals on my behalf. He stands before the appellate court and argues on my behalf and says, I know they are dead in their trespasses. I know they are dead in their sins. I know that they are evil only continually and there is none righteous, no, not one. But I put myself in their flesh. I took their sin on my shoulders. I hung it on a cross in agony and rose again, saved them and do it for me. Not for them, Not because they can earn it, but because I did it for them. Next week, we will talk about that justification. It's a thing that doesn't happen really often in human experience, but it's a thing that God does perfectly. It's another big word that you can totally understand what it means and why God has this as part of his plan for us. This is the foundation of it, guys. And I promise you, if, you, if you'll get your head around it, I'm going to ask David to come on up. It's, it's this idea of, and we've wrestled with this you know, a lot in sharing the gospel. You know, do you have to come face to face with your sin to except Christ. I think God's word is pretty clear that I have to understand my sin, that I have to see myself as God sees me, or I frankly won't come to him because I do not need him. This power of God for salvation is a power I do not possess, but I have to choose the power. I have to choose to live in that power. And choosing to live in that power comes with giving up certain things. It's, it's like driving a race car, right? 
For whatever reason, Will and I have watched two movies in the last two weeks about racing. Both great movies. Highly recommend Gran Turismo, Ford versus Ferrari. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Besides the fact that it has lots of growling engines for the better part of four hours. Makes me happy. But what's inherent in both of those films is that in order to go 220 miles an hour at 7,000 RPMs and to feel that power, I have to give up something. I have to give up some control. I have to give up my desire to be totally safe. I have to trust the car. I have to trust those who built it. I have to trust its ability to sustain that kind of force over that kind of time. And the truth is, I don't have that kind of power. God has the power. He's the one that goes 220 at 7,000 RPMs and more. He has infinite power. In order to access that power, I've got to take my measly little mess that he calls depravity and put it down and run after him. So I can go flying down that track at 220, G-forces of a rocket launch, and be so happy and excited that I got to experience this exhilaration that I want more. And that's all God wants for us. He wants us to know him and to feel him and to love him and to pursue him so that we can have his power because that's what he made us for. It's how we were designed. And so everything we do that doesn't do that is going to fall flat. It's going to depress us. It's going to hurt us. It's going to discourage us because we're not doing what he made us to do. We do not possess the power. He has it all. just want us to spend us a little bit of time this morning just praying individually while David plays. And just asking God to show us this condition. Asking God to remind us that we do not have the power. I would encourage you and challenge you to examine in in your own heart if you have confronted your own sin. Have you come face to face with it? Have you allowed yourself to stand in the light of God's word and be arraigned and listen to the indictment and listen to your trial and understand fully what that means for you without him and sit with it. We spend so much time praying for what we would like for God to do. And sometimes we don't spend enough time asking him to help us see ourselves the way he sees us. Because when I see what he sees and I see my sin, it should break my heart. And when I see what Christ has done and I fully understand how far he came to find me, that should be the most encouraging, joyful thing I've ever experienced. And I should run to him as fast as I can go. 
spend a little bit of time praying and we'll close out.